The song is, it is no secret what God can do. It's truly, there is no secret. The heavens declare the glories of God. Everywhere we look, it shows God's handiwork. From the trees, to the flowers, to the grass, to the snow, to our very lives. God's handiwork is seen. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. Uh, Today, as I said, is fellowship dinner, and I really enjoy fellowship dinners. I really do. It probably is because I like to eat. You can probably guess what my favorite part of the fellowship dinner is. You all know me so well. It's the dessert part. If I was super spiritual, I would come up here and I would say with a grin on my face, it is fellowship with each other. Well, my favorite part is the dessert. It's true. I do like the fellowship, though. I do. God designed churches to come together and fellowship with each other. And fellowship is done a lot better downstairs over food than upstairs sitting in rows watching someone speak a boring sermon. It's true. Fellowship has done so much better. I feel sorry, and this is, okay, what I'm about to say is not a guilt trip. Understand, what I'm about to say is not a guilt trip. I feel sorry for those who cannot stay for fellowship meal. Number one, because they're missing out on the good food. Number two, they're missing out on great desserts. But number three, most importantly, is they're missing out on the fellowship, the richness of sitting with a brother and sister in Christ and talking about life. Is, is such a joy. And by missing out on that, they're missing out on rich blessings from God that comes from that fellowship. Just like those people, the same experience of missing fellowship dinner is the same as, as missing service. I, I think about those who can't come to church services. Nancy was out for a month, and she missed being with everyone. There was a hole in her her heart, uh, an ache in her soul, because she couldn't be here. Those who can't come and fellowship, whether it's in church services or in fellowship dinners, there there is an ache in our heart. Some of us have grown callous to that ache because we miss so often. But the ache is still there whether we acknowledge it or not. God has designed us to come together. And he's designed us to yearn to be together. Unfortunately, we're pulled in so many different ways in this life. So many different ways. Our lives are busy. And we keep saying, oh, we need to do that. And oh, we need to do that. And oh, we need to do that. And we're pulled away from fellowship with Jesus Christ and his people. Schedules cause us not to come together. Commitments, wrong priority. All these things keep us apart if we're not careful. We can get so caught up in the to-dos to forget what we're supposed to actually do. But not only do all these external things keep us from fellowshipping together, sometimes what's inside keeps us from fellowshipping together. Selfishness. Wrong attitudes. Even when we're physically present with brothers and sisters in Christ, throw up barriers with our brothers and sisters in Christ, keeping us apart, tearing our fellowship tearing our worship apart as the church of Jesus Christ. Last week, Paul transitioned from his other subjects to a new subject, worship in the church setting. And he began it by talking about 
head coverings. And if you were not here last week, I'm sorry you missed the memo, but next week we're going to start wearing head coverings in church. <laughs> ah. <laughs> it's a joke. If you weren't here last week, catch it online. We had a great time studying the passage. In our current passage, uh, we're going to spend three weeks on this passage. Paul talks about the attitude of worship, the focus of worship, and the result of worship. So if you would read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34 with me. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Paul says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do no more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be div- differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Today, we're going to discuss verses 17 to 22 of this passage. We're going to talk about the attitude of worship. Next week, we're going to take off another chunk and talk about the focus of worship, and then the following week, we'll talk about the result of worship. But this week, 17 to 22, the attitude of worship. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the God who wants to be known. That you made a way for us to know you. And to know you intimately through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Lord, thank you that every single day we get to celebrate that as we come to you and worship you. Commune with you and be and to know you and be known by you it is truly, truly an amazing privilege that we have. Lord, help us not to grow callous to that privilege, but to yearn for it more and more and more. And Lord, help us to, to continually see and experience the joy of knowing you with your people and to experiencing that fellowship and to, to yearn for it. Lord, Lord, teach us your amazing gifts that we might draw on them all the time. Lord, I ask that today as I am up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart 
be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Now, the early church back in the day, we're talking about Paul and Peter and then the people that got saved under them. And then, so the first like 100 years or so of the early church, whenever they met together, they would take communion. That was their normal practice every single time. It began daily. It talks about in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that they met daily with each other to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread. That's communion. They would come together daily. They'd eat, take communion, learn about God. Then they, they focused more on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day. We're going to talk about that term. Uh, but every week, they got together. They would take communion and learn from the disciples, the apostles, studying Scripture. Whenever they took that communion, that Lord's Supper, they would take it along with a fellowship meal. It was part of the fellowship meal. We have Lord's Supper, and then normally after the service, we'll take the fellowship meal. But then they had it all together, and the Lord's Supper was a part of the fellowship meal. And they called that fellowship meal the love feast. Jude chapter 12 talks about the love feast. He says, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, up autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. So, love feast is what he talks about. Uh, there we go, love feast. Uh-huh. If you want to turn around, you can see what those screens are going to look like. It's going to be nice, isn't it? Yeah. Really bright, crisp. Be great. So, love feast. They met together for that meal. Part of that meal was the Lord's Supper. As people stopped meeting in houses, the fellowship meal part kind of dropped off, becoming more of what we do, where they would take the Lord's Supper, and then after service, they would have a fellowship meal. Um, Lord's Supper being a focus within the service. All that is important background for what we're going to talk about today, important context of the meal, Lord's Supper being part of this meal that they took together. And that will hopefully clear up some things as we talk about the historical background for this passage. And hopefully I can connect some dots to this sermon that we see that the Corinthians were not having the right attitude of worship in their fellowship with each other, specifically in the context of this fellowship meal that the Lord's Supper was part of. Attitudes of worship that the Corinthians were not having. First off, an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. Paul writes to the Corinthians rather scathingly. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When the Corinthians met together in each other's homes for services and for taking this Lord's Supper and this meal, there were literal divisions among them. There were metaphorical differences, but there were literal differences, differences based upon social status, that they would actually split the guests up into different rooms of the house. In the late 1970s, James Wiseman excavated a Corinthian home, and they dated this Corinthian home to between the years of AD 50 and 75. So about the time that Paul was actually writing 1 Corinthians, this home was there. This home can still be visited today, uh, this is kind of a picture of how it looks now. When guests entered the house, they would come 
to, into this little courtyard here. Uh, and then there were different rooms split off this court ro- courtyard. One of the rooms was the, tri- 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 the dining room. <laughs> it was roughly 25 by 18 feet. Uh, they would have couches for reclining on because of that day you didn't sit to eat, you reclined to eat. They wanted your whole body to be relaxed and receptive for the food to come into it. So you would recline. With those couches there at the table, you'd fit about nine people in that dining room. Okay? The courtyard coming in, th- it's, that, it's not t- really to scale. It's kind of hard to see. But the courtyard was about 16 by 20 feet. And they would normally have a pool in the middle of it. A small pool. Um, about 30 to 40 people could fit into that courtyard packed if they were sitting very close to each other or standing, 30 to 40 people. So think about it. Church, have a meal. If more than nine people come, you're going to have to split and go into the different rooms. Nine people would be in the dining room, the rest in the courtyard. And that's pretty bad. But when you think about how they made the division, normally division was based on social status and wealth. The people with the, the most bang for their buck would go into the dining room, or the people you wanted to look good in front of would go into the dining room, and the rest would go in the courtyard. The poor or the less esteemed guests would go into the courtyard at this time. The courtyard was scarcely furnished. Normally the quality of the food, the quality of the drink, the quality of the service, the quality of the comfort was much less than the dining room. The dining room people would be served first. Those in the courtyard would serve last. The Corinthians were very proud, and they wanted people to look on them and say, look at me, look how much favor I have. And so they would use those divisions to show who were most favored by God, because those with the most favor definitely had the most wealth or the most social status, wouldn't you think? So let us set those aside, because they are the most favored by God, and we can look on and be in awe of them. But that kind of backfired because Paul and everyone else would then know who was actually the most favored by God was not those in the dining room. The proof that someone who's truly following Christ is not a correct belief system, is not the size of our wallet, is not who we know. The proof of someone truly following Christ is behavior that reflects the gospel. James writes about it here in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone, but someone might say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. The Corinthians were showing by their deeds that they were not truly following Jesus Christ. Yes, they might be saved. They might have turned from their sin, trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Their their sins have been forgiven because they trusted in Jesus alone and not all their good works. But they're not following Jesus with their life. They're proud. They're not caring for those less than them. They're boosting themselves up. The right attitude of worship is humility 
It's the knowledge of what Solomon confesses in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. He says, indeed, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. The truth of scripture is that we are all in the same boat. We are all sinners in the hands of an angry God because we've lived our lives against him. We are all in need of mercy. Paul, over and over and over again, urges Christians that no one is better than another. It doesn't matter our nationality. It doesn't matter our belief system. We all desperately need Jesus. And that's the truth. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. This righteousness of Jesus Christ is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the gospel, that we don't get to God through our works. We don't get to God through our religious rituals. We don't get to God through who we know and what we know. We get to God through Jesus Christ. It's the simple fact that we all need him because we all cannot get to him on our own. And knowing this fact brings humility. It brings humility. We're all the same. You, me, the guy who runs the sound booth, we are all the same. We might have different roles, different giftings that God has given us, but we don't have different statuses. We are all sinners, desperately in need of Jesus. That fact should bring the second attitude of worship, unity, unity. Let's read those verses again, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 19. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Because of the Corinthians' pride, they were divided. Humility brings unity. Pride brings difference, division. We are supposed to have unity. Paul said all this chapter a little bit differently in the book of Ephesians. Beginning in chapter 2, Paul discusses the gospel. And he says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not a, from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. He says, as we said, that salvation comes not by something we do, but it's the gift of God that we turn around and receive. We say, I am a sinner, and I need you, Jesus Christ. I trust in you alone for my salvation. The minute we do that, we're saved. We're saved. Nothing we have to do. Paul says we are all the same. We all need God's amazing grace because we cannot earn it. Once Paul makes this foundation statement about the gospel, that we are all the same, we cannot earn salvation, we need Jesus, he then goes on and talks about the two main divisions in Christians at this time, the Jews and the Gentiles. They were historically divided. They hated each other. They wouldn't even eat with each other, the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says in a long passage in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 to 17, he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. That is, there we go. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together 
to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. As a, there we go. That's the end of the passage right there. All right. Yeah? No, I skipped it. I skipped a passage. That's not the passage I wanted. That's further on. Oh! Oh! The computer ate my passage. That is so sad. Because that is the right reference. But it's the wrong verse for the reference. I'll just read it to you. He says... Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Paul says, when we realize that we are nothing, desperately in need of God's grace, we will draw closer to those around us who are also nothing. Before, the Jews were like, oh, you're Gentiles, and the Gentiles were like, oh, you're Jews. Now they said, we're sinners. And that's who we are. We all need Jesus, therefore let us come together and pursue Jesus together. Let's pursue fellowship with the church of Jesus Christ because we need each other to push each other towards Jesus which brings us to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, which I read. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God's spirit lives. We are what God is building. A one unified church. And as we are together unified, God is glorified because we are something that is completely countercultural to the rest of the world. The world does not promote unity. The song might say, What we all need is love, whatever that tune goes. Yeah, exactly, all that, okay? But they don't know how to do it. We are those who have experienced the love of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are able to truly love those around us, truly seek unity instead of building barriers and holding grudges, instead of keeping people out and looking down on each other, instead of gossiping and backbiting, we stand shoulder to shoulder, linking elbows to glorify God together. The salvation we have, this humility should pour out of us, resulting in different attitudes, a different lifestyle, which itself promotes unity, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity. Unity is what we're called to. So, turn to someone near you and say, I realize that you are a sinner. Yeah, it makes you feel good to say that, doesn't it? It makes you really good. Now say, but I'm a wicked sinner too. There you go. Praise God for his grace. There you go. There you go. Now let's join hands and sing Kumbaya. (laughs) Don't want to do it? Okay. In a more serious note, there is a reason why the early church greeted each other with a holy kiss. Not on the mouth, but the culture was they would kiss each other on the cheek. And it was a holy kiss because it was a greeting, but it was also saying, we're one. We're one. That, that holy kiss morphed into a holy hug, and then morphed into a holy handshake. And now in American society, it's morphed into a holy wave and turn and go the other direction. Some churches do what's called the passing of the peace, uh, which came, is rooted back into this holy kiss. They've forgotten that that's what it is, but it, it was a symbol when it, when it started as the passing of the peace. It was starting a way to greet each other and to, to, to show by your greeting each other that we are one, that there is nothing in between us. We're passing the peace. We're showing there is peace here. There's no bitterness. There's no barriers. We are unified. That's what it started with. We need reminders that we need each other and we desperately need God's grace. Attitudes of worship, humility, unity. Third, he says, service. We read the first part of the verse twice. Those who are are bored with the first part of the verse, we are moving on now to the second part of the verse. We're going to talk about service in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 to 22. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk, Don't you have homes to eat or drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul says that when the Corinthians met together, they went ahead with their own suppers before other people were served. Picture those gatherings with me. This is a photograph of that time. (laughs) So the rich are in their inner room in that, that, that dining room area, the nine people there, the rest are in the courtyard, the poor are beginning to assemble while the rich are still there, because the poor, some of them are coming from their work to these gatherings. The rich don't have to do that, they got everything they need. The poor are still assembling, the rich are there, those in their inner sanctum don't care what's going on in the courtyard because they are the elite, they are the esteemed, they don't care about those who are outside because they're hungry, so they begin eating. By the time those who are in the outer courtroom are served, those who are in the inner dining room have had more than enough. In fact, Paul says that they've eaten their fill, they've drunken so much that they are now drunk. While there are people that are still in the courtyard, hungry, because they haven't gotten all their food yet. Paul uses the phrase, go ahead with your own suppers. They, they started their meal first, before everyone was even gathered. 
But that phrase has more than just starting. It is starting the meal and gorging yourself is the effect of this phrase. So they don't just, they don't just care about, they don't care about those who don't have anything. They only care about their own stomachs and they're gorging themselves on food that they could have sent out to the poor who don't have anything to eat this next week. But they're, they're eating the meal. Paul doesn't object to them in this passage, the well-to-do having great meals in their homes, having private dinner parties and eating their fill. What Paul objects to is in a church setting, these people gorging themselves at the expense of those who don't have anything. And he says that's not appropriate in a church setting. If we are all desperately needing God's grace and we're seeking to be unified, we should then seek to serve each other and to look what are the needs around us. We are called to serve and to lift up those around us in our service. Jesus gave his life for us. Therefore, we should be willingly imitating him and giving up our lives for those around us. In a little bit, Paul is going to use a metaphor about a body for a church. And he says that we as the church have many members and each one of us is different. Then he explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 21 to 26. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that though there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. For if one part suffers, every part su suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. As we look around us in our worship setting, or when we're just out with fellow Christians, we should be always looking around us and seeking to serve and those who are fellow Christians. Our worship time together when we're with each other should not be, what can I get from the service? But how can I help the person that's sitting next to me? How can I serve the person that's sitting across the aisle? How can I, how can I reach out and show love to the person who's come the very first time? That should be what we'd be asking because we're here to serve. Peter said it more succinctly in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Instead of coming together and gorging ourselves, both literally in a fellowship meal or metaphorically in a worship service of saying, what can I get out of this? We are called to serve each other, to see what each other needs, and to provide that in a way that only we uniquely can provide that. Attitudes in worship, humility, unity, service. Finally, our last attitude today is focus. This point is a teaser for what we're going to talk about next week as we discuss the next section. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty to 22. We read it, but we're going to read it again. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. So when you're eating, some of you, you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. As I said earlier, when the early church got together for church services, they always celebrated the Lord's Supper. They always did. 
but they've done it so much, they had forgotten whose supper they were eating at this time. I'm going to geek out a little bit. Please forgive me. I spent a whole service last week geeking out over the historical background of head coverings. I'm only geeking out just a little bit today. Paul is using a specific construction when he says the Lord's Supper here. He says, so then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. The form he is using for the Lord's Supper is the form of ownership. It is the supper owned by the Lord. The same form that's used here for Lord's Supper was the form that is used for the early, by the early church for Sundays. As we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. That, that form is the day that is owned by the Lord. And they use that for Sundays. Today, we in America have forgotten what the Lord's Day means. That is a day owned by the Lord and therefore should be used for the Lord on behalf of the Lord in the way the Lord wants us to instead of the way that the culture tells us to use it. The Lord's Day. The person who owns something gets to call the shots. The hosts in Corinth had forgotten whose meal it was. They thought it was their meal dedicated to their most favored guests. It's what it had morphed into. Their focus was on themselves and the benefit they could get out of it in their mind. But Paul is saying, who indeed is the host, who is hosting this meal? If it is the Lord's Supper, if it is owned by the Lord, then the focus should be him and attention and the benefit should be given on his for his people for his glory worship is to be dedicated to him so that people will be compelled to follow him is what he's saying unfortunately sometimes and especially in the worship setting and i'm sure brooke and david can both agree with me that we we do it so often that sometimes the focus of worship changes from being directed at jesus to directed at us Sometimes when I'm leading worship, I'm thinking about how is my voice sounding? Am I on key? Am I singing the right words? And then I'm changing the focus from Jesus to focusing on me. When I'm up here preaching, I, I, I'm oftentimes, thought I'm, I fight it, but I'm thinking about how am I sounding? Am I being succinct? Am I putting people to sleep? All these things going through my mind when the focus should be on Jesus, lifting him up. When we're in the pew, sometimes our focus is on how, how, are, sing, how are, thing, are we singing well? Is someone speaking compel, compellingly? Sometimes it's on what am I wearing or what is someone else wearing and why in the world would they wear that? Sometimes it's on the cleanliness of the building. Sometimes it's on the state of the parking lot. It's easy for us as humans to forget what the focus of worship is supposed to be. And we let all the things of this world come in instead. Our focus is on Jesus. Incidentally, if we remember that the focus of our worship is Jesus, we will be compelled to serve his people. We'll be compelled to serve his people. We will take our worship of him and turn and love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will turn and provide for their physical and material needs as the Corinthians should have been doing. Those who are rich should have said, you know, I got a whole bunch to eat. So instead of gorging myself on this food, I'm going to pack it up in all these care packages and send it home and take this time of worshiping Jesus to help those who don't have anything. The focus 
We will do what Jesus did for us if our focus is right. If our worship, if our focus is on Jesus, it will drive ourselves to examine ourselves to see that we have the same mindset that Jesus had for us. I love the hymn of May the Mind of Christ My Savior. The hymn writer says, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as onward I go. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. That is our focus. Jesus, that others might see Jesus in us every single day. Our focus is Jesus Christ, which drives us then to serve those around us, reminding us, of the need of unity, which is based upon the humility that we all need Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for showing us yourself, knowing that we had a barrier to cross that we could not, and you sent Jesus to earth to live among us, God with us, that we might know you Thank you for realizing